is a code of silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a code of silence and it can't go on. Cutting Through the Matrix on Friday the 28th of November 2008. Now for those who are just tuning in for the first time, I advise them to go to cuttingthroughthematrix.com and on the website there you'll find lots of previous talks I've given which will take you through this vast journey of history showing the powerful people and actors, as they're called by themselves, on the world stage, and how they formed foundations and so on, and how they all interconnect. They basically gave us the culture of the West, and they're creating the new culture for the future as we speak, as we live. Always planning ahead, always to profit themselves too, mind you, under tremendous guises of charity and doing good for others. Also look into Alan Watt Sentinel, sentinel.eu for transcripts which you can download and print up and they're written in the various languages of Europe. Most people don't realize that in the 1800s very powerful men just seemed to come out of nowhere and they were called the Robber Barons. A very good book to read. It's called the Robber Barons. And they go through the big names, their household names today, international names, like the Rockefellers and the Goulds, the Carnegies, and so on. And they tell you basically, often tongue-in-cheek, how they made their money, which was by really theft and plunder and, and very good con games. In fact, quite a few of them collapsed the, uh, the banking system of the U.S. but three times in the 1800s. They got together and collapsed it and robbed thousands of people of their pensions and everything. And they became very great for that. You see, they're called great people. That's what we have in history books. And out of it also came their big foundations, their foundations through which they would alter their persona of, uh, of reality such as the Rockefeller family who were into eugenics they were the most racist family probably in the US you should read their history read the book called The Rockefellers and how they gunned down had gunned down lots of miners who were living on pittances in these factory towns owned by the Rockefeller family the Rockefeller family actually brought in their own preacher to make sure they were taught, you know, the right kind of Christianity, obey your master. And if they buy all their, all their foodstuffs and so on from the company store owned by Rockefeller as well, they were paid in tokens, Rockefeller tokens, so they couldn't spend it anywhere else. This is the real history of the U.S., the one that they don't tell you in Hollywood when they give you the cowboys and Indian stuff. And these factory towns were all across the United States. Well, these powerful people, after especially after the incident when they, they gunned down so many miners and their wives using the U.S. forces and militia and getting away with it too, brought in big 
image makers. One of them was a man called Gates. I can, you can imagine who he's related to. And the other one was Mackenzie King from Canada, a sort of hack politician who knew how to kiss everyone's rear end. But he was rewarded, mind you, later on and made him Prime Minister of Canada. But the connection here was the Anglo-American establishment that you'll find Professor Carl Quigley and others talking about. It's rather fascinating to realize that it was already on the go then, and they had planned a brave new world at the beginning of the 1900s. Back with more of this after this break. I'm Alan Ward, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix. Talking about the powerful men who were already there in the 1800s, emerged into the early 1900s as multi-millionaires, and how they had a cartel, basically, of all essential goods. But they also cast an eye on the future. They eventually blended with the English establishment, the London establishment, really, and, in fact, they formed an association with them. This eventually became the Council on Foreign Relations, something that the Rockefeller family basically funded into existence. They could not call it the Royal Institute of International Affairs because Royal wouldn't go too well with U.S. citizens at that time. And they have many, many branches belonging to the same group. They're into everything. You would not believe what they're into. In fact, during World War II, the Rockefellers often wrote out checks for projects for the CIA after World War II and through the Cold War from their own personal checkbooks. That's how closely integrated they are with the government and really the secret societies such as the CIA, which it is a secret society, form. But they also cast an eye, as I say, to the future and the kind of world they wanted to plan and bring into existence. Now remember from the beginning, they wanted population control. They also had a list of, of superior and inferior races, which they have never changed, even today. And they also realized that they could never have democracy as such for the people because the people might not want to let them have their way at the top and plunder them and rule over them and steal from them and imprison them and have wars because love wars was a very profitable and you always can gain more territory through wars therefore they came up with this Anglo-American idea a combination emerging it's called the special relationship in political circles between London and Washington DC Margaret Thatcher referred to it all the time in her talks It really is a fascist system with rich, very rich old families who are often intermarried, running big, big, massive foundations who sponsor the non-governmental organizations which appear to be part of democracy, but in reality they lead policy in this thing called democracy. Here's an article from the Council on Foreign Relations 
and it's called Global Governance Sovereignty by Richard N. Haff, President, Council on Foreign Relations, February 17, 2006. Since the world's 190-plus states, they call them states, not nations now, now coexist with a larger number of powerful non-sovereign and at least partly and often largely independent actors ranging from corporations to non-government organizations. Well, they know this because they fund the non-governmental organizations. It says here from terrorist groups, which they also have not been known to fund, to drug cartels, and we'll say no more about that, from regional and global institutions to banks and private equity funds. The sovereign state is influenced by them, for better and for worse, as much as it is able to influence them. The near monopoly of power once enjoyed by sovereign entities is being eroded. Well, that's their agenda, you see, at that, because they're for global governance, but not for the people. It says here, as a result, new mechanisms are needed for regional and global governance that include actors other than states, meaning nations. This is not to argue that Microsoft, Amnesty International, or Goldman Sachs be given seats in the United Nations General Assembly to listen to this, but it does mean including representatives of such organizations in regional and global deliberations when they have the capacity to affect whether and how regional and global challenges are met. So there you have the Soviet system, without mentioning the word Soviet, because that's where they took it from, where the NGOs presented, pretended to represent factions of the public and the politicians pretended that they were genuine and they'd listened to them. That's what it is. Now, the big foundations, especially one, this one here that's published this, are responsible for many of these, fund, these particular NGO groups and their bosses, their big foundations that front for the old families of Europe make sure that they're all funded very, very well. So it says, moreover, states must be prepared to cede some sovereignty to world bodies, see, world bodies, if the international system is to function. This is already taking place in the trade realm Governments agreed to accept the rulings of the World Trade Organization because on balance they benefit from an international trading order, even if a particular decision requires that they alter a practice that is their sovereign right to carry out. Most people don't even know who put forth the idea of the World Trade Organization that led to the GATT Treaty. They could tell you all about the stars in Hollywood and the affairs I've had and who's divorced from who and so on. But the things that affect their lives and will be becoming more apparent in the very near future are directly affecting their lives. They're completely ignorant of. So some governments are prepared to give up elements of sovereignty to address the threat of global climate change. Under one such arrangement, the Kyoto Protocol which runs through 2012, signatories agree to cap specific emissions. What is needed now is a successor arrangement in which a larger number of governments, including the United States, China, and India, accept emission limits or adopt common standards because they recognize they would be worse off if no country did. Now, remember this whole ball of wax, this whole ball of gas, really, of global warming 
is a con game dreamed up by one of their key foundations. And that was the Club of Rome, who dreamed the idea up in the 1970s and boasted about it in their own uh, published book called The First Global Revolution. A con game to dominate the world, totally. Last week, or last, maybe Monday or Tuesday, I read an article from China claiming that it was doing the world a favor and helping to cut global warming and emissions by aborting people. You see where it's going to, all of this stuff? It's going to be the biggest stick you've ever seen. It says, all of this suggests that sovereignty must be redefined as states start to cope with globalization. At its core, globalization entails the increasing volume, velocity, and importance of flows within and across borders of people. Now, that's only ones that are authorized. Remember, if you look at their charters, ideas, greenhouse gases, I guess you're going to carry them across back and forth too. Goods, dollars, drugs, viruses, emails, weapons, and a good deal else, challenging one of sovereignty's fundamental principles, the ability to control what crosses borders in either direction. Sovereign states increasingly measure their vulnerability not to one another, but to forces beyond their control. Globalization thus implies that sovereignty is not only becoming weaker in reality, but that it needs it needs, now listen, but that it needs to become weaker. States would be wise to weaken sovereignty in order to protect themselves. He's used another big con, because they cannot insulate themselves from what goes on elsewhere. Sovereignty is no longer a sanctuary. And they go on to talk about how the world's all come together to fight terrorism, another big con that this particular organization and many of its associates had the part of dreaming up the war on terror. But it's it's astonishing, astonishing to realize the cons that rule us. As I say, we we had religion for thousands of years, which was used by powerful institutions, political institutions, governing institutions, They had people at one time terrified of the dark, terrified of the very forest in which they lived because of unseen forces all around them. They were fine before all that. They got on fine, just fine and happy and healthy. But then came these, the high priests, you see, and scared the bejesus out of them. And so you couldn't go anywhere that was safe except the big church's sanctuary. And it was all lit up with candles, and they had even more demonic figures called gargoyles outside to scare off the badder ones. That's how it worked. That was the psychology of it. We've been run by ghosts, you see. Ghosts have ruled us for thousands of years. And believe you me, this, this term is not just cast up out of the darkness in this context because that's what they're using now, this global warming, the whole scam of it. Here's an article here. And it's from the Telegraph. Friday, 28th of November, 2008. The world has never seen such freezing heat by Christopher Booker. A surreal scientific blunder last week raised a huge question mark about the temperature records that underpin the worldwide alarm over global warming. On Monday, NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies, 
G-I-S-S, which is run by Al Gore's chief scientific ally, Dr. James Hansen, and is one of four bodies responsible for monitoring global temperatures, announced that last month was the hottest October on record. This was startling. Across the world, there were reports of unseasonal snow and plummeting temperatures last month. From the American Great Plains to China and from the Alps to New Zealand, China's official news agency reported that Tibet had suffered its worst snowstorm ever. In the U.S., the National Oceanographic Atmospheric Administration measured 63 local snowfall records and 115 lowest ever temperatures for the month and ranked it only as the 70th warmest October 114 years. Back with more this chilling story after this break. Hi, I am Alan Watt. This is Cutting Through the Matrix, and we're going through the, the nonsense to do with global warming from an article from The Telegraph. Uh, as I say, it was exposed that their particular official claim that October was the, the warmest month and so on has been completely disputed and repudiated. It says here, so what explained the anomaly? GISS's computerized temperature maps seemed to show readings across a large part of Russia had been up to 10 degrees higher than normal, but when expert readers of the two leading warming skeptic blogs, What's Up With That and Climate Audit began detailed analysis of the GISS data, they made an astonishing discovery. The reason for the freak figures was that the scores of temperature records from Russia and elsewhere were not based on October readings at all. Figures from the previous month had simply been carried over and repeated two months running. Now, do you really believe that something at that level makes these kind of mistakes? No, of course they don't. Because they must create this big boogeyman. A boogeyman, a ghost, if you like, of global warming and greenhouse gases that neither you, the average person, can prove or disprove, just like the medieval man couldn't disprove or prove the existence of these gargolic demons he was told prowled all across the place. And that's what they're using. And they fudge records because, you see, it was settled. And you ought to understand when these big foundations come together and they settle and agree upon a course of action for the future, they mean it. They will not vary their plan. Even though it gets completely ridiculed and exposed, they will stick to it because global warming is to be the big stick to rule your lives individually. Believe you me. It says here the error was so glaring that when it was reported on the two blogs run by the U.S. meteorologist Anthony Watts and Steve McIntyre, the Canadian computer analyst who won fame for his expert debunking of the notorious hockey stick graph, GISS began hastily revising its figures, I bet it did, this only made the confusion worse because to compensate for the lower temperatures in Russia, GISS claimed to have discovered a new hot spot in the Arctic in a month when satellite images were showing Arctic sea ice recovering so fast from its summer melt that three weeks ago it was 30% more extensive than at the same time last year. In other words, they're utter liars. <laughs> you see, I'll, I'll say it for what it is. They're utter liars. You see? 
A GISS spokesman lamely explained that the reason for the error in the Russian figures was that they were obtained from another body and that GISS did not have resources to exercise proper quality control over the data it was supplied with to deal with NASA, for goodness sake. And NOAA and these big organizations, all these satellites, says this is an astonishing admission. The figures published by Dr. Hansen's Institute are not only one of the four data sets that the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change relies on to promote its case for global warming, but they are the most widely quoted since they consistently show higher temperatures than the others. (laughs) If there's one scientist more responsible than any other for the alarm over global warming, it is Dr. Hansen who set the whole scare in train back in 1988 with his testimony to a U.S. Senate committee chaired by Al Gore. Again and again, Dr. Hansen has been to the fore making extreme claims over the dangers of climate change. He was recently received in the news here for supporting the Greenpeace activists acquitted of criminally damaging a coal-fired power station in Kent. Well, isn't that terrorism now, isn't it? So he's what? He's allied with terrorists. Mm. On the grounds that the harm done to the planet by a new power station would far outweigh any damage they had done themselves. Yet last week's latest episode is far from the first time Dr. Hansen's methodology has been called in question. In 2007, he was forced by Mr. Watts and Mr. McIntyre to revise his published figures for the U.S. surface temperatures to show that the hottest decade of the 20th century was not the 1990s, as he had claimed, but the 1930s. How's that for it? How how is that for a good good con job, eh? And this is the head guy that's been told by the Club of Rome to lead the charge. And all the other players or actors that work for the real government of the world make sure that they hold them up as the prophet. Says another of his close allies is Dr. Rajendra Puchori, chairman of the IPCC, who make their living on this global warming scam, who recently startled a university audience in Australia by claiming that global temperatures have recently been rising very much faster than ever, in front of a graph showing them rising sharply in the past decade. In fact, as many of his audience were aware, they may not, they may not have been rising in recent years and since 2007 have actually dropped. So here he is with a graph telling you that not to believe your lying eyes. Dr. Pachuri, a former railway engineer with no qualifications in climate science, well, he's the ideal candidate to be one of these characters, you see. May believe that, I mean, he doesn't want to go back to be an engineer on a, on a railway, does he? Not the salary he's getting from the United Nations. May believe what Dr. Hansen tells him. But whether on the basis of such evidence it is wise for the world's governments to embark on some of the most costly economic measures ever proposed to remedy a problem which may actually not exist is a question which would give us all pause for thought. And that's for those who can still do some thinking. This is a big, big agenda. And you ain't seen nothing yet. I'll be back with more after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth.
I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix. I'm going to show you how this whole climate change nonsense and global warming and greenhouse gases will affect you. It's already happening. And this is going to happen through all the British Commonwealth countries. It will also eventually catch on in America because it's that, that the last report or the previous report I'd, I'd given the very first report talked about how we're all interdependent and there are no, no nations anymore, basically. The big, powerful bodies rule our lives and they claim so they should. I mean, who needs democracy, eh? They have to redefine democracy as governments with the big foundations and the NGOs which the foundations lead and pay. That's what democracy is. This is from the BBC. It's an article 26th of November 2008 by Palab Ghosh, who's a science correspondent for the BBC News. It says, the government science think tank as its own think tank has proposed that homes in the UK should have regular MOT-type energy checkups. Now, in Britain, an MOT is the Ministry of Transportation, so they're using this analogy here. Uh, which, and you have to get your car checked up and certified every year, or you can't drive it, you can't get it insured, and you won't get your little sticker. You have the privilege, the privilege of driving. The privileges, you see, in the British Commonwealth countries, you don't have any rights. It says, so they, want, they want to do this to homes now. They want access to your homes. This is the start of it, though. The think tank called Foresight is to release a report suggesting a number of radical ways to meet the UK's green goals. You see, it's global warming, you know, over the next 50 years. Now, they will, they will, they said they're using this as a war, remember, for the global system said at the, the Club of Rome. If we have global society, it must be under the threat of war. Man would be the enemy of the planet. And, and of course, the planet, to an extent, would be at war with him. And global warming would fit the bill. So it doesn't matter how farcical it seems or how much you expose it, they're going to ram it along because they never change their policy. When all these foundations come together, they never change. So here you go. The report calls for less centralized, more small-scale energy production. It will also suggest using intelligent metering in homes and businesses to show the real-time costs of different types of energy. Energy efficiency assessments of buildings, now this is very important, which account for half of all energy use would also help meet the targets for CO2 emissions. The report says that the UK is locked in to using certain forms of energy and leading energy experts say that radical solutions, radical should scare you, are needed if the UK is to diversify its energy use to meet its target of reducing CO2 emissions by 2020. You know, if you, you, if you had no CO2 emissions, it means we'd all be dead because that's what we breathe out. Buildings account for about half the country's energy use, and so it should be the government's main focus in trying to reduce CO2 emissions. But it has had limited success in persuading businesses and homeowners to become more energy efficient. The Foresight report says that this is down to inertia. Customers and suppliers they are, say they're locked into centralized energy production and inefficient consumption. 
produce a stick and carrot. It says, the report calls for incentives to encourage greener local energy production and more effective measures to get consumers to use less energy. Options put forward include intelligent metering, which show the true costs of gas and electricity, and more regular energy efficiency assessments of homes. Regular energy efficiency assessments of homes is the key word, the key term here. Because they're going to fill your home, and you're going to be on the street, you see, if it doesn't come up to their, their, to their par, as they say. And believe you me, they keep upping the, the building's safety standards codes every year. You could never keep up with it. So regular energy efficiency assessments of homes and businesses, which the report describes as an MOT, now that's a test. And for Britain, if your car fails because you've got a pinhole rust uh, spot in the bottom floor or somewhere, and I'm not kidding, a pinhole will do it, you fa- they fail you. And you can't drive the car. It says, rather than making roads safer, these would make our future climate safer, said Professor Vaughan Ridden from University College London and one of the report's authors. One of the problems is that people are not fully aware of the energy they're using and the cost of that energy to themselves and to the planet. They certainly are aware of the cost to themselves because the cost is through the roof. They're getting gouged mightily, especially since they've privatized all the systems that deliver energy to their homes by Maggie like Thatcher's government. The Foresight team is led by Professor John Beddington, the government's chief scientist. So here we have a scientific dictatorship, you see, exactly what Bertrand Russell said they'd bring in and what, what Aldo Huxley said too. He says that an MOT-type energy assessment could be tied to penalties. He's the key, penalties and incentives to encourage homeowners and businesses to adopt energy-saving technologies. Now, when they say penalties, it means they're going to fine you mightily until you comply. Generally, the first fine ensures you can't comply because it bankrupts you. This has already been tried. To keep, and some of the agencies, which they already have out there from the United Nations, by the way, in every Western country, they've set them up now, and they're going around homes, and they're fining you $5,000 if your downpipe from your roof to drain off the roof has a dent in it. I'm not kidding. So now they want to do the same thing if there's a leak from your home. You're living in some old, old banged-up house and it's all you can afford, you only suffer for it. Coercion. It's interesting how they define law. You know, at first they use coercion, which is really you know, the threat of force, and then they use force. That's what law is. It says the potential for a stick and carrot approach, perhaps regulations that, that, that links rateable values of homes and commercial premises to energy emissions, he says. Now, it's interesting, too, you know, one of the technocrats who was sent to Canada to get the privatization of the Ontario Hydro, which is the electric corporation, privatized in the late 80s, was brought from the World Bank. This man has been at a finger in every pie. That was Maurice Strong. And he was put on 
in charge as the chairman of Ontario Hydro Company. And in the newspapers at the time, he talked about the coming brownouts and shortages that would be created and how the taxpayer should now help fund the installation of massive generators to keep big businesses and big factories, etc., going. And he started this amazing project back then. And everyone said, well, what's happening? What's going on here? We're never given an excuse for it. But you see, that's, that's 20 years ago. Pretty long. And that's how far ahead they were planning all this rubbish that we're hearing about today with global warming and so on. Because, and the whole idea was in the British-style system, which every country, including the U.S., has adopted completely, the public build up infrastructure and essential services such as electricity and power roads and so on. And in Britain, they bring in the other party who would say it's too expensive, but they privatize it. They'd privatize it for 10 years until they ran it in the ground and, and just basically ran off with the proceeds. Then again, they'd bring in the public sector to pay for upkeep and repairs and so on. Then they'd privatize it again. This is how the con game goes. So the citizens of Ontario had built up this massive power, electric power system, and Maurice Strong was sent in from the UN to take over that position. While he was in, it was found out he was taking his full paycheck from the United Nations while he was still chairman of the hydro company for Ontario. And so after his little scandal, he says, okay, I'll accept a dollar a month for pay from Ontario Hydro. The public have no idea, as I say, no idea whatsoever is really, really ever going on. And they're not helped by the media which isn't there to, to, to bring them to any reality. Technocrats, as Carl Quigley said, run behind the scenes. They're moved all over the place. They're never ever elected. But they have more power than any politician. That's what he said in his own book. They wield more power. That's for consolation, for not being in the public eye. In fact, that's the only way they can get so much done. It's been kept out of the public eye. It's, it's just on and on. If you really understand the, the hugeness of this and the corruption of it all, because even the, the, those who are in the conspiracy here to take over a whole planet, and that's what it is, they're under charitable works and foundations and organizations all working in this integrated net which they own, are filling their pockets and all their pals' pockets with incredible money from the looted public. So we should write a new book on the barons, the robber barons of the 21st century. A few months ago, there was a big scandal broke out when people's pets in the West, dogs and cats, were just suddenly dying. And after much kerfuffle, and the pleading of ignorance, the scientific community came out and admitted that it was mainly coming from it was wheat, etc., from China that was used for mixing in these dog, these awful dog foods that they, they feed the animals and the cat foods. But you know that the Federal Drug Administration had known for years 
this stuff was being introduced. And they kept quiet about it. Then they said at the time, a few months ago, it would never be allowed into the public's food supply, the human food chain. Now the symptoms of this were, were renal failure, primarily kidney damage, and very strong smell of ammonia as the animal lost control of his bladder and, and would gradually die. There would be blood in the urine, or it was an awful death. But here's an article here from naturalnews.com. It says, and this is from the 27th of November, 2008, when the Federal Drug Administration in the U.S. discovered melamine in U.S. infant formula products. So, okay, now they told us what it was not in the food chain for humans. So it was discovered in U.S. infant formula. They love children, if you've noticed. After all, the series of talks I've given to do with bisphenol A and so on, they really do love children. So here's melamine in U.S. infant formula products. It made a decision, the FDA made a conscious decision to withhold that information from the public. Instead, it called a teleconference with the infant formula manufacturers to warn them about its findings. Now, who does the FDA supposedly, we know it's all a con and, and democracy is a con and so on, who are they supposed to really work for? Why are they going to the manufacturers instead of the public? I'll let you figure that one out. And, and by the way, if you do your homework on the FDA, look at the representatives who sit on these government bodies. They've all worked generally just recently for the big corporations involved, uh, including Monsanto, including the companies that make the, the pesticides and so on for all these crops. These people are often CEOs of these organizations. That's who's protecting you, right? You can trust them. It says, the truth about the melamine only became public after the Associated Press filed a Freedom of Information Act request demanding the test results from the FDA. Absent that request, this whole issue would have continued to remain an FDA secret. This poison put in the food would have been kept a secret. In the aftermath of that decision, the FDA is now under intense fire for once again betraying the public trust and acting to protect the interests of corporations rather than the people. Congress, public health groups, and consumer advocates are blasting the FDA for utterly disregarding public safety and catering once again to the financial interests of the companies it regulates. As I, as I say, these guys have all been on the boards of these companies, these inspectors. The FDA, of course, claims that low levels of melamine are perfectly safe for babies to consume in unlimited quantity. Sure they are, and bisphenol A is safe too. So is aspartame, sodium nitrate, sucralose, MSG, and every other food ingredient poison you can think of. According to the FDA, they're all safe for babies to eat or drink in virtually unlimited quantities. Needless to say, the FDA has become the laughing stock of all intelligent observers. It's not hard to figure out that the FDA has sold out to big business. It was created by big business and betrayed the people thrusting defenseless babies directly into the line of dangerous chemicals and toxic additives. 
Yet the, F- the FDA still conspires to hide the truth about these dangers from the public. Truth be told, it is the FDA that's become the real danger to the public. And it goes on and on and on about that. And you have to go into the melamine thing. As I say, the, the whole, there's a lot of information here on, on melamine. It was killing thousands of people in Russia about a month ago, uh, not Russia, China a month ago. Children mainly. And that was over the mainstream media. And apparently the, the, these sellers of milk, are, of course it's all the government who runs China, it's a good ally, communist China, and it had diluted milk to such an extent it add this melamine to whiten it to make it look more like milk. It went into all milk products and so on. And it says here that former pet food contaminant melamine now surfacing in baby formula. Melamine is raising its ugly head again as time reports as saying traces of melamine were found in a Chinese brand of baby formula. The Canadian Broadcasting Company is reporting September the 11th, 2008, that 14 babies developed kidney, stone, kidney stones. A lot more died when the big real news got out to the public. Quite astonishing, really. Melamine, melamine. Also make plastics out of it, you know, for your tabletops and stuff. But it's good for babies to eat. I'll be back with more after this break. I'm Alan Watt. We're cutting through the matrix. And just before I go on to a caller, read the Health and Science magazine, Health and Science, September the 17th, 2008. It has an article on melamine there and what it did in China. 1,200 babies across the country were sickened and went with full report on that and killed at least two so far. So far, it's rather a in-depth article and by the way the big companies that we know so well like Nestle etc were all involved in this they use it to bulk up the baby's food they say and no doubt it's to bulk up things like chocolato and things that we love so much now we'll go to the callers and we've got Jared in New York there there Jared hello Jared hello hey, yes. uh, go ahead yeah, I, my God, um, I, I, I just want to tell you, um, yeah, I work in a bottle room, a recycle, a recycle bottle room. Uh-huh. I, I see it. I, what Bertrand Russell said, there's no nonsense so arrogant that cannot be made the creed of the people. And I see people who come in, who tell me uh, they're so proud of recycling. And, and I remember that article you went over a few months ago. I think it was a Japanese scientist who said it's the whole recycling is such a scam. You actually pollute more when you recycle. Mm-hmm. It's just like yeah, it is. It's like wow. Yeah, it is such a scam. You understand, even in Canada, uh, a lot of our stuff was shipped to the states, and it was well understood by every party, including politicians, that the mafia were involved in shipping the stuff down. <laughs> 
for disposal. Yeah, the mafia is involved over yeah. here too. And they're, so what they, they did was, was create a legitimate business out of recycling where they gave, started up new companies with public money, of course, made them private for recycling. And they got all this plastic for free and the, the public deliver it to them. That's not a bad deal, eh? Yeah, <laughs> yeah the mafia over here, they, they, they're the one who handle all the garbage. When it comes. Yes, that's how it is. Yeah, that's, that's the world we live in. Families, criminal family, but yeah, um, and I I watched a lot of the, the movies that you recommended. Yes. Oh God, can can, can it be more obvious? Yeah, it's in your face. Yeah. In my face. Right, I, just really, I just got a word there that the top eight movies coming out shortly. The, the top eight, the first eight, in fact, and top eight all uh, are very similar to Children of Men. Oh, no. uh, all scenarios of masses of poor people in the world and this private army that's storming all over them. Everyone is the same. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I just watched. Um, uh, it's, it's on your website uh, called uh, Shenandoah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That was a, it. Was it was good. It showed you the um, like you said the hardships of war. And yeah, you can it shows see that it really is. Yeah. <laughs> How it really is, and it's all politics to do with big businesses involved and who gets money and contracts from the government, even for taking the horses, etc. Yeah, but it didn't show the part like when I, cause I've heard, I read this in, even in school, like they would just commandeer your house, yes, some soldiers and just do That's whatever right. they wanted. Yeah, yeah, and and, and a, a funny thing too with Hollywood, I watched another documentary that you recommended, Hollywoodism. Yes, and and they how this whole dream of what America's supposed to be was made in the studio. That's correct. It did. They made it in the studio. Right. They actually say in the movie that the big producers at Warner, we gave the Americans their culture. Oh, man. Thanks for calling, though. All right. Thanks, though. But for those who listen to me, it's good if you help donate. You'll find how to on my website, cardiofoodmatrix.com. That keeps me going. And from Hamish and myself, from a very snowy Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me, your God, or your gods go with you.